Have a seat if you would. Uh, again, it's, it's good to see you. We want to welcome you. If you've got a Bible, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we, uh, we did six weeks in Ecclesiastes, kind of finished up at Easter, but then I decided to come back and do a couple more messages in Ecclesiastes. And, uh, you know, this that we're going to look at today is really the most well-known passage in the book of Ecclesiastes and just didn't want to leave it without addressing it. It really, it's so well known because either if you were around in the 60s or you've watched any Vietnam War movies, you've heard probably the birds version of the song, Turn, Turn, Turn. And it was actually written by a guy named uh, Pete Seeger, who really probably owes uh, Solomon royalties for the song, because it's pretty much part of what we're going to read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, set to music, probably giving a little more hopeful spin, though, than maybe Solomon actually originally intended it. So we're going to talk about today, why trust God when the world is so broken, and you know, a lot of the reason that I chose to, to preach through Ecclesiastes, I mean, a lot of that's bathed in prayer. Uh, that's probably one of the things as a pastor that I spend the most time praying about because there's way more to preach than I ever have time to preach it. But a lot of it just seems to be for where we are in the world right now, I don't know of hardly any Bible books that are a better fit than the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's gonna, we're going to deal with some things today. I mean, like a lot of this book, it, it, it's pretty heavy. And I think this is a very legitimate question. I think it's something we wrestle with. Why trust God when the world is so broken? So think about it this way. A lot of you have played sports. Maybe some of you have coached sports. or this, It's a sports illustration, but it probably applies beyond sports with, you know, if you were in band or something like, you probably heard this kind of the same motivational speeches. But I mean, if you played sports, the coach uh, probably told you stuff like, you know, be on time, play the right way, be a good teammate, work hard, uh, do your best. And, you know, the game's going to pay you back. You know, things are going to work out the way you're supposed to. You'll get into it what you put out of it, or you'll get out of it what you put into it. Sorry. Now, all that sounds good, but it doesn't always work that way. So let me give you an illustration. So in 2014, sorry if this is painful illustration for you, uh, Dino, because I know you're a big Steelers fan, but um, 2014, in that offseason, I think the, the Steelers had signed as a free agent a running back by the name of LeGarrette Blunt. And he had had a really good career, but apparently he wasn't getting the playing time that he wanted in Pittsburgh. And so uh, during a game in, uh, during that season, he walked out on his team. And he, he just like left the sidelines. And so they cut him the next day. Now, you would think if all the coaches' speeches are true, Nobody's going to sign this guy. He's going to be out of the league. Uh, you know, he, just, he doesn't deserve another chance. But actually, almost immediately, I think, the Patriots, who were his former team, re-signed him. And he went on to win the Super Bowl with the Patriots that year. And actually, somebody told me in between services, who's a Philadelphia Eagles fan, that in that offseason, he then signed with the Eagles, and he won the Super Bowl with them the next year. That's right, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so that's not how it's supposed to work out according to the coach's speeches. Right? That doesn't seem fair. Right? If you get into it, get out of it, what you put into it, he should be struggling and like the hardworking best teammate. He's the guy that should be signing the contracts and winning the Super Bowl. But I think that's kind of a metaphor for life. I mean, is, does life always work out the way that we think it should? What percentage of the time does life actually work out the way that we think it should? I mean, what do we tell our kids, parents? Fill in the blank. Life isn't Life isn't fair, right? But how often, when we, and we do this with a lot of things with our kids, parents, like, you know, don't give in to peer pressure, and then we give in to peer pressure. Like, how often do we say to our kids, life isn't fair, but then we sit around and gripe and complain like we actually expect life to be fair. Life isn't fair because the world's broken. The world's fallen, Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He said, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. How much time do we spend in our lives thinking about everything that's crooked, everything that's lacking, everything that's broken, and wondering why it can't be made straight or why God doesn't fix it. He, he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Now, that doesn't fit with what uh, a lot of Christians say, like, you know, good comes from God, but adversity, that comes from the devil. Right? God's only going to give you good, healthy, happy, wealthy, blessed, prosperous. Right? That's a, that's a lot of what we hear. And so... What's the reality of it? Because I think we need to be realist. A lot of times what happens with people in their faith is they expect things from God that God has never promised, and when that doesn't come through, they feel like God has let them down, and they lose their faith. But are we actually expecting things from God that God hasn't said that he would give us? Are we expecting everything to be okay? Are we expecting everything to work out? Are we expecting, as a Christian, life to be a bed of roses? Solomon's gonna tell us it's the opposite of this. And see, I think we need realism, a realistic faith, an accurate faith, a faith, though, that actually deals with the difficulties and the problems and the realities of life. You see, some of you, and uh, you know, I think about our graduates. Some of you are going to be going to graduations in the next few weeks. Most all of us have been to graduations. And you know what some of the most wasted time that we've ever spent in our life is? I know there's some exceptions, but some of the most wasted time we've ever spent in our lives is listening to graduation speeches. 
I mean, you talk about a bunch of motivational self-help drivel or a series of bad cliches. Was that a little harsh? Sorry if it was. Um, But uh, when my son Jay graduated from high school, okay, let me show you a picture. This was the theme of the graduation speech. Literally, this, the speaker, who I will let remain nameless, um, put, they had a Twinkie on the screen, and that was the theme of his speech. Now, you say, what was he talking about? What's the point? Uh, what was the point of it? I don't remember. It was about as empty as the calories you're going to get out of a Twinkie. And, you know... Go be everything you can be. You know, go live your best life. Go fulfill your potential. Go, you can do whatever you want to do, those kind of things. Well, that's all well and good until life smacks you in the face. I mean, that's all well and good until you face the realities of life in a broken world. I mean, it's kind of like, I was saying this to a a couple recently, you know, just talking before they get married, and said, you know, here's the thing with marriage, and then just use this for an example, and you could extrapolate this out in a lot of different ways, but, you know, my, my basic premarital counseling advice is you can't build a good marriage on good intentions, it takes a whole lot more than that. I've never had anybody come to me in premarital counseling or as we're working on their wedding vows and say, uh, you know, we vow to make each other miserable, ruin each other's lives, bankrupt each other, so on and so forth. But it happens. The question is why? Well, some of it is because of the issues that we have within us. But some of it is because of the issues that we face outside of us because we live in a fallen world. You know, when, when I got married, I was 19 years old. And no offense to 19-year-olds, but when it, at least when it, I'm not talking about in general, I'm just saying when it comes to marriage, there was a corresponding level of cluelessness there. <laughs> okay? I never stopped to think that my wife's mom would die unexpectedly in her mid-50s the first year we were married, and we were going to have to deal with that. I I never really thought about, I mean, I guess somewhere in the back of your mind, you realize this is going to happen. I never really thought about her dad's going to die. I certainly didn't anticipate my younger brother dying at 26, I didn't know that at, at some point we were going to have a, a little girl who was going to have open heart surgery when she was three days old. I didn't know we were going to spend a couple of hours not knowing if she was dead or alive. I, I didn't know how hard the ministry was going to be uh, sometimes. Didn't really plan on Robin having breast cancer. I mean, we can have motivational speeches all day long, but if we're going to live well, we're going to have to deal with some stuff like that because we live in a fallen, broken world, and nothing is everything that it's supposed to be. 
And a lot of times, there's not a whole lot of rhyme or reason to it. You know, why did we walk home with our baby, drive home with our baby girl, who's a wonderful, godly, talented young lady now, but we were in the hospital, you know, sleeping in a waiting room with about a half a dozen other families that didn't bring their babies home? Is that fair? Is it fair that we're born in the affluence of America and that some people are born with nothing in other parts of the world? Is it fair that some people get COVID and literally have no symptoms and other people die from it? I mean, these are the realities of life in the world in which we live. Can we trust God in a world like that? Because if we're gonna trust God, That's the only kind of world there is to trust him in because that's what it is. Welcome to True Life. I hope you feel encouraged today. (laughs) And some people will say, how could you trust a God like that? But if there's not God, what are you left with? It's a chance, fate. I mean, if there's not a God, what does it really matter? Because we don't have a soul. We're just highly evolved animals. Why are we even wrestling with these questions if that's what we are? I mean, does that even add up? I mean, I think I've probably said this in this series before, but your dogs are not sitting at home right now wrestling with these questions. I mean, I know some of you probably think that they are because that's how highly you think of them, but they're not. Are there answers? Well, I believe that we can trust God in the midst of this broken world, and and I want to kind of show you why. And, you know, I've said Ecclesiastes is kind of reverse apologetics and Solomon's kind of coming at things from this kind of weird opposite viewpoint of where he's like kind of taking away our reasons to trust in anything else but the Lord in this kind of roundabout way. And I think he's kind of doing that here, but he's been a little more overt here in, in, in some ways because, you know, we talked a lot about through the, as we've gone through this book, you know, all the times he says, under the sun, perspective of life without God. But there's these few times here and there where he gets theological, he becomes God-centered. And this is one of the passages. So the first reason I believe that this passage shows us that we can trust God in a broken world is because there is a divine plan, even though it may not seem like it, in the midst of the ups and the downs of life. Look look at how he starts chapter three. He says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Now, you know, that sounds very theological, very God-centered. But then it almost seems like, I think if we read this honestly, and there's not, but it almost seems like a disconnect then between that verse and what he says after this. Because he says, a time to be born and a time to die. And you say, does that mean deaths of God? A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. 
A time to kill is that of God and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate a time of war, and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that, in which, from that in which he labors? Now, what's Solomon doing here? Well, this is a form of Hebrew poetry. Be technical for a second. If you want a word to impress your friends with, if you're in BTCL, you should know this. But this is something called merism. It's 14 couplets of exact opposites that are basically expressing the widest range possible and saying everything in between. Now, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. In, in other words, if somebody does you wrong, you can't quote from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and say, oh, I can hate this person. The next time your three-year-old absolutely goes crazy, you can't quote this verse and kill the child. Okay, it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's saying, this is what life is like in a fallen world. It's a series of ups and downs. It's opposites. It's, it's good and it's bad, but God's still in control. He still has a plan and a purpose and a time and a season. You see, I, you know, I talked about these bad things that have happened in, in, in our lives. But I could, you know, the flip side of that is, you know, in, in about a week and a half, 31 years of marriage, three wonderful children, Molly having a great husband, Jay getting married in three weeks, you know, getting to be on a couple of church staffs, getting to pastor a church in Maryland, getting to plant true life and seeing all that God has done down through the years here. Many of you seeing you come to Christ and be baptized, getting to baptize my dad and, and his brother, being a part of planting uh, other churches here, planting churches in, in, in Honduras, planting churches uh, you know, here in different places, you know, starting training centers, boys and girls clubs, and you know, God has blessed us. God has been good to us, but a lot of times it feels like a roller coaster. I mean, this is past week, just maybe kind of some, um, I don't know, maybe some lighter examples. You know, uh, I mowed this past week. I like mowing because, like, when you're a pastor, it's something you can actually finish. Um, but it's kind of like pasturing too and that it still grows back, right? <laughs> the weeds still come up. But, um, but, you know, beautiful day outside mowing, enjoying it at least for a few minutes until my allergies kick in. <laughs> and life in East Tennessee in the spring, it's beautiful and it's awful, right? It's creation and the fall. It's dignity and depravity. It's, it's beauty and it's pain. This is life in the real world. 
This is the list, the, the ups and downs that he's giving us. Um, Monday, Lily and I went to play golf uh, after, after work. And, you know, that's the week before been extremely busy. And so it was nice to get away, kind of mental health break. Uh, you know, and fun to be out there with Lily. Once again, beautiful day. It's enjoyable. Uh, I actually made a birdie, which like some of you are like, isn't that what you're supposed to do? But if you've never seen me play golf, though, if you don't realize this can be a big deal, right? Preston, you've seen me play golf. It's not a common occurrence. And so it's going well until we get to the ninth hole and randomly out of nowhere, we're attacked by a swarm of bugs. And some of them were mosquitoes. It's April. This makes no sense, but I have like 12 to 15 mosquito bites the next day. The next day. It's great and it's terrible all mixed into one. This is life in a fallen world. Wednesday, uh, so after men's leadership training, usually I'm, you know, you're just talking to people, things are going on. Usually I'm here for a little while, but like I'm out of here at 810 Wednesday night. As I was leaving, I told Pastor Philip and Andy Ropp, uh, you know, used to be a pastor and a military chaplain. I'm like, I got through my entire to-do list today, plus some stuff that wasn't on it, except for one thing that wasn't necessary. And like, when you're a pastor, that's a minor miracle. And like, I'm leaving before some crisis uh, happens. <laughs> and uh, on my way home, though, my phone rings. And um, it's the number for the alarm company. So that means one of two things. Either it's the church, and I wasn't concerned about that, because I knew people were still here, and if something happened, is something is somehow got triggered accidentally, everything's fine. Uh, or uh, it's my mom's house, because, you know, I get those uh, calls uh, too. And so, you know, I answer, and they say, and I'm so-and-so from so-and-so alarm company, and um, we got a panic alarm at, at Paula Inman's house, and uh, so on and so forth. And so you're thinking, okay, is she just accidentally triggered this? Or, you know, because, like, when it's a panic alarm. They don't call her. They call the police. Then they call me. So I hang up, call my mom. Fortunately, she had just accidentally hit it. But, you know, you have that moment of like, uh-oh. And it's turned out to be nothing. But here I am thinking, man, what an awesome day. You know, I talked last week about productivity and like accomplishment. And it says like such an accomplished day. And then you get that call. Like I said, fortunately, it turned out to be anything. But we've all gotten those calls that haven't turned out to be nothing. And in a moment, your life changes. That's what he's talking about here with this list. You say, why is it this way if God's in control? Well, it's this way because when God created us, he didn't make us robots. He made us in his image. And he gave us the ability to make choices. And if we can choose to love, we can choose to hate. If we can choose to heal, we can choose to kill. If we can choose to tell the truth, we can choose to lie. If we can choose to do right, we can choose to do what's wrong. And uh, the Bible says that we reap what we sow. And so there has to be consequences to sin. And it's built into the very fabric of creation where Romans chapter 8 tells us that the creation, the world itself, is fallen. Nothing is what it's supposed to be. You know what? If the Bible's true, we shouldn't sit around and be amazed at how bad things are. We ought to be amazed that things are actually as good as they are. I mean, if everything is broken, 
And so he's saying that life is going to be this series of ups and downs because of the brokenness, because of the fall. And people, sometimes people push back, say, well, you know, how can you believe in a God? If, if, if God is really loving and he has all power, how could you really believe in him with all the suffering and the evil that's in the world? But what I would say is, number one, is if there is no God and we have no soul and we're just highly evolved animals, what reason is there to believe that there's actually evil and suffering in the world? You gotta borrow Christian categories if you're gonna be an atheist and even make those arguments. Because there is no objective, ultimate morality if that is the case, if, if, if there is no God and if we have no soul. I mean, William Lane Craig, who's a well-known apologist, puts it this way. He says, natural science tells us only what is, not what ought to be. And he quotes another philosopher who says, science is about facts, not norms. It might tell us how we are, but it wouldn't tell us what is wrong with how we are. In particular, it cannot tell us that we have a moral obligation to take actions that are conducive to human flourishing. And he asked this question. He says, so if there is no God, what foundation remains for objective moral duties? And listen to this. He says, on the naturalistic view, human beings are just animals, and animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a lion kills a zebra, it kills the zebra, but it does not murder the zebra. When a great white shark forcibly copulates with a female, it forcibly copulates with her, but it does not rape her, for there is no moral dimension to these actions. They are neither prohibited nor obligatory. So if God does not exist, why think we have any moral obligations to do anything? Who or what imposes these moral duties on us? Where do they come from? It's hard to see why they would be anything more than a subjective impression ingrained into us by societal and parental conditioning. On the atheistic view, certain actions such as incest and rape may not be biologically and socially advantageous and so in the course of human development have become taboo, that is socially unacceptable, but that does absolutely nothing to show that rape or incest is really wrong. Such behavior goes on all the time in the animal kingdom. On the atheistic view, the rapist who flouts the herd morality is doing nothing more serious than acting unfashionably. If there is no moral lawgiver, then there is no objective moral law. And if there is no objective moral law, then we have no objective moral duties. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying if someone is an atheist, that means that they're a proponent of rape. I'm just saying they have no logical basis to actually say that it's wrong in an objective, absolute sense every time. There's just not. I think the logic there is crystal clear. So uh, I would say then if we're even beginning to think about right and wrong, good, evil, suffering, these kind of things, that in and of itself is pointing to a God. 
But beyond that, you know, why would God permit, why would God allow all of this evil and suffering if he really loves us? Well, what I would say to that is, once again, he made everything good. The fall has corrupted everything. Um, to let us be human beings, he has to let things play out, but that's not just what he did. He did more than that in that he left heaven. He came to earth. He became one of us. He placed himself in this broken world. He placed himself under his own law, and he never sinned, so he didn't deserve uh, to die, but yet despite the fact that he didn't deserve to die, he died in our place, paying for our sins, suffering to someday end suffering when it's all said and done. And so when the Bible says that God demonstrated his own love toward us, then while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us, that literally means that on the cross, Jesus proved his love for us. So why do I believe in God in the midst of all the evil and suffering in the world? It's ultimately because of Jesus and the cross and the fact that he suffered for me and he suffered with me. And no other religion or philosophy has an answer like that. So I believe that we can trust God because he has a plan. And somehow, even in the midst of all the fallenness and the brokenness and the ups and downs of life, he is ultimately working out his plan. But the reason he can do that, and this is the second reason why we can trust him, is we can trust God in the midst of a broken world because everything is operating under his sovereignty. When we talk about God being sovereign, what we're saying is that God's in control. That nothing happens that he doesn't cause or allow to happen. And this is one of the basic questions of life. Is God really in control or are things just happening? Now, when I look at my life, it's hard for me to believe that things are just happening. But certainly when I look at Scripture, I mean, one of the basic claims of the Bible is that God is on his throne, that this is the centerpiece of the world, that everything is flowing out of that, that he, according in the words of Ephesians 1, is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. And then in the words of Charles Spurgeon, that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That's what scripture would claim. And listen, there's a lot of questions that come from that. But I think there's also a lot of peace that comes from believing that God is ultimately in control. I hope I'm not. I want to be in control but I think also the older I get, the more I learn what an illusion that is. You know, one of the things we have to wrestle to the ground is, I, do I believe I'm the master of my own fate or that he's the master of my fate? Am I in control of my life and my destiny or is he in control of my life and my destiny? Is he really ordering things and putting things uh, together? Is there really a time and plan and, and seasons? Look at what Solomon says here. Once again, verse 1, he says, To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. In verse 11, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He says he's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Listen, God has a plan from beginning to end. 
Listen to me. Somebody, somebody, I think, needs to hear this. The way we live and what we tend to focus on is that list, the ups and downs of the moment. You really want to be able to rise above your circumstances, live with a mindset that God has a beginning-to-end plan that he's working out, and what's going on in this moment is not the ultimate, it's not the end, it's not what your end of the story is going to be. He says in verse 14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him, that we should submit to him, reverence him, look to him, trust him. God is in control. God is sovereign, and we can trust him because of that. Number three, we can trust God in a broken world because we experience good from the providential hand of God. Can you actually believe that adversity and blessing both come from or at least filter through the hand of God? Spurgeon used to say, when you can't trace God's hand, trust God's heart. He is a good God. Uh, In verse 13, Solomon writes, also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. And when the Bible talks about gift, it's always connected to grace. And there's different aspects of grace that, that the Bible talks about. There's common grace. Common grace is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that God makes the sun to shine and the rain to come on the just and the unjust. Even if you're not a Christian, if you're alive, and whatever blessings you have beyond that, that's a gift of the grace of God. There's certainly saving grace where God would choose us, call us, justify us in Jesus Christ, make us his own, forgive us when we deserve his judgment. That's grace, God's unmerited favor. And see, here's the thing. If you want to have peace during the ups and downs of life, live a life that's grounded in the grace of God. Here's what I mean. If you're still living based on your works, whether or not you profess to be a Christian, here's what you think. If I do this, I ought to get that. If I don't do this, I shouldn't get that. If somebody does this, they ought to get this. If LeGarrette Blunt walks out on his team, he ought to be out of the league instead of winning the Super Bowl. That's works-based thinking. So the problem is, when I'm doing good, by my definition, God ought to be good to me. When I'm doing bad, then God's going to reject me and God's going to push me away. I deserve whatever it is I'm getting. Or if things are going bad in life, you think, what must I be doing wrong, whether you are or not? Or you may think, I'm doing what's right, but things are bad, so something's wrong with God or God's not real or I can't trust him. And all of those thinking, types of thinking which mess up our lives are all because our theology is wrong. And you may profess to be a Christian, but if you think that way, you're practically living with a works-based theology instead of a grace-based theology. 
and it messes us up. You say, what's the difference? Here's the difference, and I, just, I want you to get this. The difference is, when I'm living based on grace, I know all I deserve is hell. Anything beyond that is grace. So, it's kind of like Andy Stanley says, sometimes at night, I mean, he said this a few years ago, I'm sure his kids are grown by now, but like when, you know, everybody would be at home and uh, all, everybody would be good, everybody was safe, they'd had dinner and they're getting ready to go to bed, he would just, you know, bow down before the Lord and, and thank God for his grace. Why? Because it's not supposed to be that way. See, we, we think when things are good, it's supposed to be that way. But if this book is true, when things are good, it's grace. When things are messed up, it's supposed to be that way. Because we're broken, fallen sinners living in a broken, fallen, sinful world where nothing is as it should be. But if we know Jesus Christ and we have the peace that comes from that, that's grace. And if you have breath and if you have life and if you have a family and you have health and you have a job, that's abundant grace. And listen, there's going to be trials and there's going to be problems and there's going to be difficulties. Life is this series of ups and downs in the broken world. But that doesn't mean God's bad. He's good because we're getting good that we don't deserve because we're sinners. That's grace. He's a good God. You can trust him. And then number four. In, in some ways, maybe this is the most important. It all fits together, but in a lot of ways, this ties everything that he's saying together. That is, we can trust God in a broken world because God sets everything right in eternity. God sets everything right in eternity. Now, this is hard for us because we live in the moment. We're living in that list in verses one through eight and we're looking at what's wrong and it's like, God, where are you? Understand, God works on a different timetable than we do. He answers prayers on a different timetable than I have. He works things out on a different time frame than I have. I mean, I read this little story one time about some rural area where um, it was a, kind of a farming community, and there's like one atheist in the town, and um, he, he wrote this letter to the editor. He talked about, you know, how awesome his crop was and how bad some of his neighbors uh, who were struggling uh, were, and, uh, you know, where's God? There must not be a God. Look at how good I'm doing. Look at how blessed I am, and look at how they're uh, struggling and the editor of the newspaper who was a Christian and whatever they were harvesting, they, they did it in October, just wrote back this one sentence reply and said, God doesn't settle all of his accounts in October. <laughs> Sometimes he settles them in this world. I mean, I've experienced something recently where God set something right after about 16 years. But you know, some things aren't gonna get set right until before the throne of God, until the judgment seat of Christ. But I want you to think about something. If there is no ultimate judgment, there is no justice. You thought about that? I mean, there's definitely not justice in this world. There's a lot of things that people are getting away with. 
But at the throne of God, there's nothing that anybody is getting away with. That's justice. And we crave that. But see, we get it all messed up in our head because like, there's people, you know, in America sitting around, it's in church, they're at Starbucks, and they're, uh, you know, talking philosophy, and they're like, how could people uh, believe in God, in a God who sends people to hell? While their other complaint is the temperature of their coffee is wrong. Can I just tell you that only in an affluent country like America are people having those debates, you go to Africa somewhere, somewhere in the world where there's a genocide going on, that's not what they're debating. You be a part of the persecuted church somewhere around the world, that's not what they're debating. Their biggest concern is, is somebody gonna come and kidnap and, and rape my wife and my daughter today? They're not debating and questioning, worried about whether or not they can worship a God who sends people to hell. They can't worship any God but that kind of God. They're looking for a God of wrath. They're crying out with the martyred saints in the book of Revelation, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? They're saying, where is the God of justice? He's gonna set it right in eternity on that side. But can I tell you that he's also going to set it right in eternity on the flip side, on the positive side. Because the good news is, for those of us who are in Christ, all of our suffering is temporary. Listen, the only way this can be your best life now is if you're going to hell. That's the reality. There is a better day coming. We are looking for another world because we know that we're not created for this world. We know there's something more than this world. And the good news is in Christ, he is our good shepherd who's gonna shepherd us to fountains of living waters. And there he's gonna wipe every tear from our eyes. And there's gonna be no more sickness or sorrow or suffering or death because he's going to restore everything. Listen, our world, people are looking for the kingdom of God. Down deep, that's what everybody wants. Almost everybody. What are we looking for? We're looking for love. We're looking for unity. We're looking for peace. We're looking for justice. That's the kingdom of God. Problem is, though, people want the kingdom without the king. And it's only in King Jesus that can we now and certainly eternally have those things. Listen, we need to understand this as Christians. You know, so many debates going on in our society today, but like, let's just take racism for an example. In the kingdom of God, there'll be no racism. He's making all one because he made us in the first place and he's redeeming people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to worship him forever. So, as a Bible-believing Christian, I say that racism is evil and it's sin. There's people coming from a completely different perspective, though, who say, also say that racism is evil. But because they're coming from a different perspective, we throw stones at them. Wouldn't it be maybe a little smarter to agree on the common ground and say, yeah, this is wrong, 
Now, the problem may be, they may be coming with a different solution. You got critical race theory. I don't think that's solving the problem. I think it's making it worse because it's identifying people not as people, but as, as groups and everybody's an oppressor and oppressed and so on and so forth. But can we agree on the common ground that this is wrong? We want something to be different. And can we propose a, a different solution that you need the, the king to have the kingdom and that the answer is in Jesus? And if we maybe live that out, maybe people would see that it's a real solution instead of just hearing people or seeing people throw stones at other people. You can't have the kingdom without the king. He sets it right in eternity. That is our ultimate hope. And listen, what I'm saying is apart from that, there is no hope. It's just fate, luck, chance, emptiness. Make the best out of it that you can. And then go to the dirt. That's what Solomon says is the under the sun perspective. Or that God is real, that he's revealed himself in, in, in Jesus Christ, that he's ultimately in control. He's a good God. He's working out his plan. And his plan is not just time and space where we live. His plan is beyond, above time and space. It's eternal. And ultimately, it's all going to get set right then. Can we trust that? That's what he's calling us to do. Let me just close with just an application here. Uh, so what do we do with this? I would say in light of these truths, we are responsible to God for how we live our lives in this broken world. Listen, the Bible does not put uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility at odds with one another. They're always connected together like this. Because God is in control, because God is good, there are certain things that I need to do in my life. The reality is, if God's not in control, what Psalm is saying, you go do you, you do live however you want to live, make the best of it you can, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. But if this is true, look at what he says starting in verse 12. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. What's he calling us to do? He's calling us to trust him. In every message in this series, we've connected it to the New Testament. So this is the New Testament connection I would make it here. It almost sounds like a commentary on, a, on Ecclesiastes chapter 3 to me, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And these that he called, he also justified. And, and those that he justified, these he also glorified. God has an eternal plan that he's working out in us to make us like Jesus for our good and his glory. Ultimately, we're gonna be perfected, glorified, in his presence. And then the application of this, he says, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He says, you can trust me 
in the midst of this ups and downs of this crazy world because I am for you. I am good. I want good for you. There's going to be bad in this world. That's the inevitable reality. But I am still in control, and I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you, and he suffered for you, and he suffered to ultimately end your suffering. It's not going to happen now. It'll happen in eternity. But I'm with you. I'm walking with you. I love you. I care for you. There's peace in me even while you walk through the suffering of this life. He says, trust me. He says, rejoice. You know, thank him for the blessings. Worship him. He says, do all the good that you can. Because we can sit around and we can philosophize. We can sit around and mope and cry and complain. Or we can rejoice in what's good. We can praise God. We can do all the good that we can. We can try to make a difference. He says, ultimately, fear him. To surrender to him, submit to him, reverence him. We have to decide if we're going to try to be the master of our own fate or trust Jesus to be the Lord and master of our lives. As Solomon describes this, you know it's true. You live it every day. Life is this series of ups and downs. The question is, how are we going to respond? What are we going to trust in? And how are we going to live our lives? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes if we could. And there might be some of you sitting here this morning, some of you watching online, that you need to make a decision to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. To stop trying to be in control, but to confess him as Lord, to trust him, to give control to him. And if God's doing a work in your heart, I just invite you to do that right now, to call on his name, to ask him to forgive you, to tell him you believe in him, to confess him as Lord and just surrender to him. So if you've got questions about that, or you make that decision, come talk to me if you're here. Talk to somebody you know or fill out the connection card that's underneath the seat and turn it in or text TLC decision to 94,000. If you're online, contact one of our hosts or in the chat room or the comments section. For those of us who are Christians, Some of you are hurting right now. It's a downtime in the ups and downs of life. Can you still trust the Lord? Believe that he's good. Believe that this won't last forever. That he's working out his plans. That he's in control. Can you rely on him? Thank him for what's good. Rejoice in him. Do all the good that you can. Make a difference because part of being made in the image of God is we have a responsibility both for what's wrong and a responsibility to make it right. Father God, I pray that you give us faith. Lord, I I, I pray that you'd help us to view our life and our circumstances and our problems through the lens of Scripture. Lord, that you would fill us with your truth, that you would renew our minds, that we would see our circumstances through you and not you through our circumstances. God, that you would 
Enable us to build our lives on a solid foundation, Lord, that you would help us to trust you, to find our hope and our peace and our purpose in you. God, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with truth. God, fill us with spiritual power and use us. Lord, if there are people who are wrestling with the decision to follow you, just ask that you would break down any walls, any barriers, any opposition, and Lord, just bring them to yourself. God, we love you, we praise you, we give you glory, we thank you that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are trustworthy, that you are with us, that you are for us, that you love us, and that you'll never leave us or forsake us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being here. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. If you need to talk, need to pray.